Hello everybody, this is Jennifer Matteris, and before I get started this week, I'd just like to take care of one thing. I am actually between jobs right now, and I have started a GoFundMe to help me make rent for this month. So if you'd like to help out, I'm actually going to put the link in the Facebook for Disaster Area, as well as at the tail end of the episode notes for this week. Um, I am just trying to make rent. I'm starting a new job in a couple of weeks, hopefully, so we'll see how it goes. But if you'd like to help out, I'd really appreciate it. So thank you very much. And welcome to Disaster Area. Episode 17, Japan Airlines Flight 123, August 12th, 1985, 520 deceased, 4 injured. Please live bravely. Please look after the children. Passenger Kazuo Yoshimura, in a note to his wife, written during the emergency on Japan Airlines Flight 123. The crash of Japan Airlines Flight 123 is actually two crashes. It is the crash that happened on August 12, 1985, and it's the first crash that happened on June 2, 1978. On that day, the Boeing 747 was coming in for a landing at Osaka International Airport. On that particular day, as the plane was landing, the pilots were bringing it in with the nose just a little too high. When you're landing a plane, you don't land it, obviously, with the plane parallel to the ground because you run the risk of the nose going too far down and a crash occurring. So if you've ever seen any plane landing, you know for a fact that they land with their nose a little bit up. But you have to go only so far. If you go too high up, much like with a teeter-totter, the bottom can hit the ground. In this case, that's exactly what happened. When they landed, the tail struck the ground, the runway that is, and there was some damage. Now, 24 people on board were injured, but everybody survived. It wasn't as serious as it could have been. But a tail strike not being all that uncommon doesn't mean that there wasn't damage. It did make some damage on the skin of the plane, the aft fuselage frame, and the aft pressure bulkhead. Because of that, a Boeing airplane to ground team was contracted to fix the plane. The aft pressure bulkhead in particular is what we're focusing on. The bulkhead looks basically, according to more than one person I saw describe it as such in a couple of documentaries, it basically looks like an umbrella lying on its side. You put it on the ground, that's what a bulkhead looks like. The bulkhead is set into the rear tail cone. And its purpose is to keep pressurized air from escaping out the back of the plane. The bulkhead itself is made up of triangles of metal fanned out. Basically, if you could picture those kind of 
cheap fans that we all had as little kids. Uh, those little cheap Chinese fans. And when you would fan them out all the way around into one big circle, that's kind of the same way that a bulkhead looks like. If you were to look at the plane from the outside and sort of see a cross-section of it lengthwise, the bulkhead would sit just about at the point where the fin begins to extend upward at the top of the plane. The bulkhead sits just ahead of the central hydraulic unit, which is a box from which you would have these hydraulic pipes extending to the ceiling and the floor. And the pipes go on top and under the bulkhead toward the front of the plane so that it can distribute hydraulic fluid throughout the plane so that the plane can be steered, the elevators, rudders, ailerons, all those things can be moved around. Behind the hydraulic unit in the tail cone at the very rear of the plane is the auxiliary power unit. This powers the lights and the air conditioning when the plane is on the ground and the engines which provide the power normally are not running. To repair the bulkhead, two halves of the bulkhead needed to be riveted together. Think of it as two half circles of paper that you need to glue together to make one full circle. You overlap one edge on the other and you glue it together, just like that. The repair team had elected to replace half of the bulkhead rather than have a whole new bulkhead sent in because of shipping problems. It was just a lot easier to have a completely new bottom half of the bulkhead sent in and attached to the old, perfectly fine top half of the bulkhead. So Boeing designed a repair and sent it with written and drawn instructions. The repair team in Japan had everything that they needed to correctly repair this bulkhead. When they put these two halves together, there needed to be something in the middle to help splice them together. It was a splice plate. It would be placed between the overlapping edges of the two halves where they would be riveted together. And there would be three parallel rows of rivets, each an inch apart, to hold this repair together. Now, like I said, picture two rounded half circle halves that you want to glue together. You overlap one diameter long edge over another, and you put glue in between the two. And that's how you do that just to kind of get that Im mental image in your head because that's sort of the way that they did this repair. You have the new bulkhead half on the bottom, then a splice plate going over that edge where you would have put glue in the example, and then the top bulkhead over that. And then you would put the row of rivets according to the way that I'm going to describe it now. Now, keep in mind, we have, we have three pieces at this point. We have bulkhead A, which is the top half. We have bulkhead B, which is the new bottom half, which was sent in. And then we have the splice plate. 
the correct repair, the way that it should have been done, is that you have row one of rivets. This row of rivets goes through the first bulkhead and the splice plate. The second row of rivets grows through bulkhead A, the splice plate, and bulkhead B. Row three goes through the splice plate and bulkhead B. So you have two rows of rivets that are going through two layers each, and then that middle row of rivets is going through three layers. And that splice plate is in one piece. This is why the repair works. The splice plate is one piece, and the three rows of rivets then share that load. But in this case, the repair was changed. When they changed the repair, they used two different splice plates, um, two separate splice plates right down the middle. And the new repair went a little something like this. That first row of rivets went through bulkhead A, the old bulkhead, and the first splice plate. The second row of rivets went through bulkhead A, the second splice plate, and bulkhead B. And the third row of rivets went through splice plate 2 and bulkhead B. Just to kind of give you a mental image of what that would look like, the only difference between this repair and the old repair is that there's a division in the splice plate between the first and second row of rivets. In this case, because the splice plate was separated between those first two rows of rivets, the second and third rows of rivets carry all of the load. That first row carries none of the load. Because of that, there's different stresses on this particular joining, on these particular rivets. And so every time that the plane goes up, it pressurizes. Every time it comes down, it depressurizes. And when a plane pressurizes and depressurizes, the metal in the plane expands outward. And then it comes back in when it depressurizes. Engineers planned for this. They planned for this on the outside of the plane. They planned for this on certain aspects of the inside of the plane where this is going to be important like the aft pressure bulkhead. But with the change in the repair, things changed. Because of this, stress fractures start to form along the second row of rivets, that middle row. These are three perpendicular rows. These are three rows in a row, each next to each other, an inch apart. And that middle row is starting to be surrounded by stress fractures. Not big ones, not big enough that you could see unless you were looking for them, but stress fractures. The way that the repair was um, angled and the sealant that was used afterward would have made it really difficult for anyone examining the splice to see the flaw. And there had been people examining it. When you do repairs like this on a plane, or on any plane, you know, and these planes have to go through inspections all the time. 
it would have been very difficult for someone to see it unless somebody had pointed it out and nobody would have pointed it out or would have recognized that the repair, I should say, that they wouldn't have recognized that the repair should have been done differently. The change in the repair had been done because the curvature of the bulkhead made using a single splice plate difficult. So to make it a little easier, they had split that splice plate. And that's where these problems start to occur. There was a pressure release door, a pressure relief door, excuse me, like there is in a lot of these planes, um, or all, I should say all of these planes, but <laughs> basically if something happens with this bulkhead, the pressure relief door prevents a disaster. The thing is that the pressure relief door is not very big in this case. And should the entire bulkhead fail, this is not going to stop a failure in the plane. Not by a long shot. So now we get to the second crash. It's August 12th, 1985. Weather's nice. And we are in Tokyo. It is 6.12 p.m. And this Boeing 747, one of the most popular planes in the world, this particular plane leaves from runway 15L at Haneda Airport in Tokyo, one of the city's two airports. Uh, there's Narita and then there's Haneda. It is heading to Osaka. Now, seven, like I said, 747s are very popular. They're especially popular in Japan, even for short flights, because of the popularity of air travel. When you live in a country or a state, like, say, Hawaii, where there are a lot of islands, using planes to get from one place to another is certainly a lot faster than going on a boat. And so a lot of people in Japan were using these planes. And so instead of having these little puddle jumpers that we might have in the United States, they were using much bigger planes, like 747s, just for short internal flights. This particular flight was the fifth of six flights of the day for this plane. Uh, it wasn't the... Uh, first flight for the flight engineer. He had been on two prior flights that day, but everybody else on the crew had been swapped out And uh, as these flights went through. And so the flight engineer was the only person on the plane who uh, had been on other flights. Everybody else, this was their first flight of the day on this plane. Like I said, the weather conditions were favorable. It's a nice day. It's August. And the flight should have taken about 54 minutes. Now, on board this flight are 509 passengers and 15 crew. In the cockpit, you have Captain Masami Takahama from Akita. He's 49 years old, and he's actually in the middle of training the first officer. Uh, he was supervising and doing the radio on this flight while the first officer flew the plane. Uh, Captain Takahama had 12,400 flight hours, almost 5,000 of which were on 747s. Now, the first officer was Yutaka Sasaki from Kobe. He was 39 years old, and he was sitting in the pilot seat, which is on the left side when you walk into the cockpit. 
This flight was part of his training to move to captain. He needed to get more hours in flying the plane, so he was going to be flying the plane that day under the supervision of Captain Takahama. He had 4,000 total flight hours, almost 3,000 of which were on 747s. So he had a lot of experience. Most of his experience were on these 747s. The flight engineer was Hiroshi Fukuda from Kyoto. He was 46 years old. He had 9,800 flight hours. Almost 4,000 of those flight hours were on 747s. So this entire crew is very well-versed in 747s. They have a lot of experience with flying this particular plane, and that is going to come in handy. Like I said, the flight was scheduled to take 54 minutes, and basically what it would do um, is that it would fly out of Haneda in Tokyo, go down and fly along the coastline on its way to Osaka to the west. A lot of these passengers, uh, the reason it was a lot very busy that particular day and why there were so many people on the plane is that many of the passengers were uh, heading home for the Oban festival. Oban or Ban is a Japanese Buddhist festival it's meant to honor the spirits of your ancestors. The festival lasts three days, and its start date varies depending on your location within Japan. Uh, I saw a couple of, of sources that said basically it uh, really depends on, um, there's three different uh, start dates for it, depending on where you are, if you're in a rural area, if you're in Tokyo, uh, it really depends. In Modern days, it's very much a time to return home, have family reunions, clean the graves of the dead, uh, you know, your dead relatives. Uh, you have to kind of think of it, I guess, if you want to compare it to a Western uh, holiday as sort of a version of Memorial Day weekend. You know, you go home, you have, you, you see your family, you have a, bar a barbecue, you go to the cemetery and you put flowers on graves. It's, it's just to kind of remember uh, your relatives. And like I said, this is a very busy holiday weekend. Travel is really heavy. There's a lot of people flying. So it's no wonder that there were 524 people on this plane. There were a lot of people going home. And even in the case of some of uh, the um, passengers, you know, some of them were actually uh, Japan Airlines employees who were flying home. At 624 is when things go wrong. The plane is at 7,300 meters and flying over Izu Peninsula when one of the flight attendants uh, calls up to the cockpit to tell the flight engineer that someone wants to use the restroom even though the fasten seatbelt sign is still on. They're still going up to their cruising altitude. They haven't even reached that point yet. So they're still, still ascending. Uh, the crew... This, this is not an, an unusual request. Uh, they allow it. Um, but almost immediately after they um, sort of hang up on this flight attendant, this explosive decompression occurs. There's a loud boom throughout the plane. Uh, there was an off-duty uh, JAL, which is the Japan Airlines, uh, JAL flight attendant who uh, she would later, uh, she would be one of the ones who actually survived the crash. Uh, her name was Yumi Ochiai, and she said that after the explosion, which came from the rear of the plane, the inside of the plane turned white. 
uh, and filled with this condensation, sort of cloud vapor, that sort of thing. And part of the ceiling in the rear of the plane near the, the, um, the toilets collapsed. When this part of the plane exploded, inside the plane, I mean, they, had, they knew that something was going wrong. But outside the plane, it was patently obvious that something had gone wrong. When the explosion happened, the plane lost the auxiliary power unit in the tail cone, the rudder, and a large portion of the vertical stabilizer. There was a person on the ground who had taken a photograph of the plane as it flew overhead. It's a very grainy photo. It is very hard to see any detail in this photo whatsoever. But what you can see in the photo is that the majority of the tail fin was gone. That tail fin that sticks up at the back had just completely, almost completely, blown off. That wasn't the worst part of this. Uh, it was certainly a bad part, but another part of the explosion that, uh, another part of the damage from this explosion is that all four of the hydraulic lines were severed. That will soon cause complete hydraulic pressure loss. Almost immediately after the explosion, the crew in the cockpit understand that something has gone terribly wrong. The sound of the explosion can be heard on the, on the flight recorder, and they actually acknowledge, you know, something exploded. 46 seconds after this explosion occurs, the crew turns on the emergency signal, which turns the identifier for the plane on the ground controller screens red, so they know there's an emergency going on. Uh, they do mention that they need to call a Squawk 77, 7700, which is uh, sort of the emergency reference that they use uh, for what's going on. At 6.26 p.m., which is two minutes after the explosion, the, the crew is starting to recognize they're having a loss of hydraulic pressure. They speak with a flight attendant who tells them that the explosion came from the back of the plane. At the same time, the flight engineer sees a light which indicates that the rear right cargo door, the R5 door, has quote-unquote broken or blown off. This has happened before. It's not something that they haven't heard of before. These sorts of, of, of problems have happened in other planes and in other crashes. Most notably, in March of 1974, when Turkish Airlines Flight 981 lost a cargo door just after leaving Paris, the loss led to the plane crashing, killing 346 people. It was much the same uh, as this particular flight when the damage caused, uh, I believe, a hydraulic issue, and it made the plane uncontrollable, and it crashed into uh, the... the uh, into the the forest, I believe it was it was a wooded area, but it uh, had happened uh, before on a similar flight, which successfully landed uh, miraculously. Uh, but the repairs recommended after the previous incident had some flaws. 
and those flaws led to the failure of the Turkish flight's cargo door. Both of those flights occurred on DC-10s, though. They didn't happen on 747s. So the fact that they had happened before and that they had not happened on 747s, that's really, you know, I don't think they were really thinking about that in the flight. They were maybe thinking, okay, this has happened before on a plane, a cargo door has come off. And so they get in touch with the ground. They get in touch with... Um, the uh, ground controllers, but they also get in touch with JAL Flight Operations. Uh, JAL Flight Operations had heard about what was happening, and they start getting into um, uh, looking through their paperwork, looking through their books, asking questions, trying to find out how they can help the plane while it's still in the air. They are very concerned at this point from what they know of the cargo door flying off, that the cargo door may have flown back and damaged the tail, which would explain why they can't fly this plane. Obviously, at this point, they can't look back and see, you know, they can't look in the rearview mirror and check to see if that cargo door is there. They don't know. They can't go back and check. They have to keep this plane in the air, and they just can't, you know, they can't send a flight attendant. They're too busy trying to help people. Uh, you know, so it really, they have to go b with what they know and what they, the information that they have before them and the information that they have before them tells them that that cargo door is more than likely off. Because they're starting to lose hydraulics, they're losing the control of the aircraft. Like I said before, the uh, hydraulics make the elevators, the rudders, and the ailerons move. So when they're gone, you can't use those to steer anywhere. But there's also another problem. When a plane loses hydraulics, um, and, and in this particular case, uh, you know, it's a good example, it starts to go into um, uh, what's called a fugoid state. P-H-U-G-O-I-D. I really like that word, fugoid state. Uh, but basically, what a fugoid state is, is that the plane begins to move up and down as though it's on a roller coaster not not like a big roller coaster but basically um, think of if you go on a roller coaster and it has one of those um, extended parts where um, it's just like a few hills that are basically the same size that's kind of what this is what happens is that the plane's nose starts to drop as the plane slows down when the plane nose drops and it descends, the plane starts to gain speed again and the nose starts to rise. And once this starts to rise, it starts to slow down and then the nose drops. So that's how you get that roller coaster motion, that fugoid state. Another thing that's happening with this particular plane is that you're getting a Dutch roll. The plane's wings are dipping from one side to the other, creating this yaw and roll to the plane. So not only is it uh, the plane going up and down, it's also tilt, it's tipping from side to side. Not, you know, not in a very jerky motion, not enough to, um, you know, not enough to shake anybody out of their seats or anything like that. Not enough to, that the flight attendants can't move around, but enough that it's noticeable. In spite of all of this that's going on, the crew is able to figure out a way to steer using thrust changes in the engines. 
uh, this is something that happened, uh, you, these techniques uh, were used later on in United Flight 232. You might remember that as the flight, uh, when you see video of plane crashes, one of the ones you almost inevitably see is the one where the plane crashed into the cornfield and kind of tumbled over itself. It was a gigantic fireball. That's United Flight 232. They had an issue with their rear engine and uh, lost hydraulics, and they needed to do these sorts of techniques with the engines to steer the plane. Basically what happens, if, if, if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense, is that if you increase uh, the speed on both engines, if you increase thrust on both engines, you gain lift and the plane goes up. If you uh, decrease the thrust in both engines, the plane slows down and it starts to go lower. If you want to turn, you increase the thrust in one engine and it turns the other way. So if you increase the thrust in the left engine, it starts to turn right, much like when you're, you're, you know, you're in a, in a, in a canoe and you're using um, an oar. That's, you know, you, if you want to turn right, you use the oar on the left side of the boat. The ground controllers in Japan are, are realizing, you know, there's a lot of problems going on in this plane. Uh, they propose that the crew fly the plane to Nagoya Airport, which is a straight line from where they are. Uh, it is, uh, they are pointed, they're still pointed west, kind of, and so they, um, if they keep going straight, uh, they can get to Nagoya, but they would need to immediately start descending, which they're having problems doing because of the, that loss of hydraulic pressure. They can't just turn and go wherever they want to. They really have to think about it, and they're struggling to keep this plane in the air at this point. If you get a chance to listen to the uh, recording of the uh, last uh, few minutes of this plane, uh, they are really struggling to keep this plane in the air. And it, you can tell, even though at a certain point they start um, speaking Japanese instead of English. Uh, the captain decides against going to Nagoya Airport. What he wants to do is go back to Haneda in Tokyo because that airport is a very large airport, has a larger runway, and it's fully prepared for an emergency like this. There is... Um, a, a heading that they need to turn to. They need to turn to a heading of 090 to do this. And like I said, if they can't turn to or descend to go to Nagoya, they're going to have a really hard time turning to a specific point to get to Haneda. So, you know, it's a lot of, you know, wanting to go places and not actually being able to until they can figure out how to get this plane under control. While all of this is going on, they are actually also talking to y uh, Yokota Air Force Base, which is on the outskirts of northern Tokyo. It's an American Air Force Base, and they also offer the use of their runway should Flight 123 want to land there. Basically, every runway around is saying, you know, you can come here. If you're having an issue, land here, which, you know, happens anytime there's an emergency like this, um, you know, airports are ready to step up and say, come here, for the most part. 
now at 6.31 p.m., Tokyo Control uh, does suggest that they switch to Japanese rather than the international standard, which is English over the radio from here on out. Um, if uh, you listen to most uh, of these, uh, most uh, cockpit voice recorders, um, in emergencies, they still stick to English, and, uh, y you know, unless they... Um, aren't really thinking clearly or they're too busy or you know they usually try to stick to English because that is the international standard you know so it makes it a lot easier to understand but in this particular case it seems pretty clear that Tokyo Control probably understood you know there is a lot going on in this plane we don't know what's going on they're having a lot of issues maybe we should take one thing off their hands and make it so they don't have to translate everything they say into English before they say it um, during this time, the ground controller also, um, asks at one point what the nature of the emergency is, and he, he got no response. So that kind of gives you some idea, um, of just how occupied they were with trying to keep this plane in the air. Normally they will respond, even if it's just a one word answer. And they did respond to things later on, but, um, if if they're so preoccupied that they can't answer it may you know try to take what you can off of their hands to make it a little easier for them to gain control there is an issue when a plane decompresses like this and that's lack of a lack of oxygen that's something you have to worry about um the oxygen can be um it sort of evens out with what's outside the plane you know it's thinner out there and what can develop is that people start to develop hypoxia. Hypoxia is a lack of oxygen to the brain, um, to the body, and uh, if you're not getting enough oxygen, it can cause you to slow down mentally. Uh, you know, it may make you feel a little drunk. Uh, you know, you start to nod off. And sometimes you, you know, this has happened before on other planes where the uh, plane has lost uh, pressurization and it, people on those planes uh, just go to sleep and uh, go unconscious and eventually theoretically die. Uh, it happened in the incident where Payne Stewart, the golfer, his plane lost pressurization over uh, um, when they were flying across the country and inevitably crashed you know, in South Dakota. And it also happened with a Helios flight, which is a Greek, uh, um, a Greek airline, and uh, there was an incident there uh, where uh, they, the plane never pressurized and nobody realized it until it was too late. So in the cockpit, the crew do not put on their, ac their oxygen masks at any point. At one point, they do say that they should put on their masks. They kind of say, you know, should we put on our masks? Yes, we should do that. But there's no indication that they ever do. That may be a sign that they are already having been affected by hypoxia. It might have kept them from uh, putting on their their masks and the way that they speak on the the um uh force recorder at times it it kind of can be indicative that they might have had hypoxia they're they're kind of all over the place sometimes yumi ochi the off-duty flight attendant is up and about the plane 
helping other flight attendants assist passengers to put on oxygen masks, prepare for a crash, get in the crash positions, do everything that they need to do. According to Yumi Ochiai, shortly after the crash, when she um, talked to the investigators, there were no cockpit announcements. The, the um, cockpit crew never came on and said, you know, brace for impact, we're having an emergency, um, we're doing the best we can, you know, that sort of thing. Understandably so, they didn't do that because they were too busy trying to get this struggling aircraft to stay in the air. There was a pre-recorded announcement that told people to, you know, um, they were making an emergency descent, but the crew were just, I mean, they just did not have the time to do something like that. And the flight attendants, I, I imagine, would have known that, you know, considering the behavior of the plane, they really needed to, um, uh, they really needed to focus on keeping that plane in the air. Some of the masks, oxygen masks, it turned out weren't working. So flight attendants were running around giving passengers hits off of oxygen bottles, you know, kind of come over, give you, you know, this oxygen bottle, give you some air, and then go on to the next person. There is a photo that was taken, and I, honestly, I was, um, I spent about an hour the other day <laughs> trying to verify and make sure that this particular um, uh, photo was real, because it does kind of read a lot like, um, when you see photos on, um, you know, referenced in, say, YouTube videos or, or, or on um, something like that, where you really want to double check with Snopes and just make sure that it's accurate. And it really, um, there were some things about the, the uh, photo that made me think that it didn't, uh, wasn't taken on this plane. But uh, it's was um, this particular photo. I did find confirmation that it was, um, that I'll talk about later, um, that it was uh, taken on the plane. Uh, somebody had gotten their camera and taken a picture uh, down the aisle. The picture shows, uh, like I said, it shows down the aisle. It shows that the oxygen masks are hanging from the ceiling. Uh, there are passengers who are looking around in their seats. Perhaps this is right after it happened and, you know, people are still confused. What do we do? Where do we go? Um, they're all sitting down, but they're, they're looking around like, you know, trying to, to get some sort of clue about what to do next. Uh, there is a flight attendant standing, uh, maybe three or four rows in front of the person who uh, is taking the photo and she's looking down at uh, a passenger who was probably sitting you know three or four f uh, seats in front of the, the photographer uh, showing them how to put on an oxygen mask she was putting an oxygen mask over her face uh, this photo was later recovered from the camera uh, when the film was developed and that, I think that was kind of why I just wanted to verify and make sure this photo was accurate because when you see photos like this a lot of times they say well the photographer you know the photographer didn't survive this and it said that in this case but considering the number of people who died in this case of course the photographer didn't didn't survive the crash more than likely nobody in that picture survived the crash Many of the people who were on this plane realized that they were probably not going to make it. Uh, like I said, you know, you have this plane that's going up and down. It's tilting from side to side. It's struggling. It's not staying in the air. You've just had this explosion. People knew what was probably going to happen. And unlike today, you know, today you're on a plane, something happens. You get out your phone, you text your, your, your mom, you love her, and, you know, the plane crashes. At least you got that out. Um, you know, back then, you're writing notes. 
they were basically writing notes on anything they could get their hands on. Um, there's one flight attendant, Yumiko Shushima, who was writing notes, not to her family, but just to remind herself what to say to the passengers in case there was an emergency landing in both English and Japanese. She had them both written down. So she was writing down, you know, um, you know, get out of your seats, you know, um, make sure you grab your shoes, you know, you know, whatever she had to do, um, in English and Japanese on, uh, I believe it was a, a ticket, uh, that she was writing on. Uh, Mariko Shirai wrote on a t flight timetable. She wrote, I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. Help. I feel sick. I don't want to die. One of the longest notes was by a man named Hirotsu Kawaguchi. He was a 52-year-old shipping company executive, and he wrote uh, his note across seven pages of a black pocket diary. Gives you some idea of how long they were on this plane knowing they were going to die, considering how long his note is, and how you can tell over the course of the note that he didn't just sit and write it in five minutes and then sit there for the for the next 25 minutes waiting to die. He wrote it, he wrote down what he was thinking for the next 30 minutes. Um, the note reads, Mariko Suyoshi Chiyoko, be good to each other and work hard. Help your mother. It's sad, but I'm sure I won't make it. I don't know the cause. It's been five minutes now. I don't want to take any more planes. Please, Kami-sama, which is, um, according to the translation I saw, basically deities, deities, gods, whichever, um, uh, whoever he might worship. Please, Kami-sama, help me. To think that our dinner last night was the last time. There was some sort of explosion in the cabin. There was smoke and we started to descend. Where are we going? What will happen? Suyoshi, I'm counting on you. Mama which is to his wife, call her mama. It's too bad that this has happened. Goodbye. Please take good care of the children. It's 6.30 now. The plane is turning around and descending rapidly. I am grateful for the truly happy life I have enjoyed until now. Like I said, it's kind of stretched out. You can tell that he was, he had a lot of time to write what he was writing. At 6.41 p.m., the crew start to try different things to try and, and get this plane to um, to become maneuverable. They extend the main landing gear to slow the plane down, give it some drag, and when they do that, the Dutch roll of the plane, that, that yaw and roll from side to side, starts to increase. So because of that, they uh, bring the main landing gear back up again. At another point, they extend the flaps, which also caused the roll to increase. And so they immediately retract those flaps and increase thrust, but the plane assumed a nose-down attitude and begins to drop. At 6.47, the plane is at 7,000 feet when the pilots spot mountains outside. Uh, they have kind of been flying around. Uh, at one point, they go in a whole circle, and now they are over what is basically, um, I believe it was yeah, more than one place I saw it called the Japanese Alps. It's basically, um, it's around the mountains around Mount Fuji. Um, these are, you know, there's a lot of mountains around here. And so they've kind of flown into an area that is dangerous, uh, 
for them. You know, it's it's not you know, low and flat. They don't have a lot of room to maneuver. The crew struggle with the plane uh, to get it back to 13,500 feet, but it soon begins to plunge again. On the recording, um, the last thing uh, at 6.55 that Tokyo Control transmits to them is both Haneda and Yokota are available, but Tokyo Control gets no response. The last thing that you can hear on the CVR is the captain saying, nose up, nose up, power, and then the ground proximity warning system is just heard repeating, pull up, pull up, pull up. At 6.56, the plane crashes. The plane strikes um, Mount Otusaka, I believe it is, uh, in near, uh, excuse me, near Ueno Village in Gunma Pre- uh, Prefecture after uh, 32 minutes in the air. That 32 minutes is really impressive considering how hard it was to maneuver the plane at that point. Uh, Pilots and simulators would uh, try to uh, replicate the flight later on and they wouldn't be able to keep the plane flying for as long as the 32 minutes that the crew of JAL-123 managed to do. So they, the fact that they kept it up as long as they did is miraculous, even if uh, the end was not so miraculous at all. The plane struck at about 5,000 feet altitude, going 340 knots. Uh, the witnesses below who saw it uh, said it suddenly dived into a bank to the left n- behind a mountain. Uh, Ochi uh, described two or three strong shocks as it hit the mountain. It actually cut through some trees on one ridge and then crossed like kind of an open area and struck another ridge. At this point, uh, rescue and recovery begins to go underway. Uh, There are all sorts of people heading toward the the crash site. Uh, Firefighters, police, paratroopers, and 4,500 members of Japan's self-defense forces start heading toward this crash site. the uh, self-defense forces base was put on standby as soon as the news of the crash came in. Marines at Yokota Air Force Base were actually getting ready to assist in the rescue uh, when they received an order that the J- Japanese self-defense forces would handle the rescue on their own. Uh, to this day, nobody really knows where the order came from. I mean, I looked around, I tried to find, uh, see if maybe somebody had found out, but no such luck. So there was this you know, kind of miscommunication that kept the Americans from going out to help uh, out with the search. The survivors on this mountain were not rescued from the mountain until 16 hours after the crash. So, you know, you're looking at like nine o'clock the next morning, nine o'clock uh, the next morning was when if people finally started showing up. They didn't get off until 11 o'clock the next the next day. Um, Yumi Ochiai said that at first she heard uh, many people just crying and moaning, people calling out for uh, their kids, um, uh, kids calling out for their mothers. Uh, You know, you could hear people moaning and crying and suffering on that mountain. But as the night progressed, those voices died away. 
the uh, a self-defense, excuse me, a self-defense forces helicopter spotted the wreck. Uh, but given the poor visibility, nighttime, the rough terrain, they were unable to land on uh, and, and go see what was going on. The pilot reported back that there was no sign of survivors. And because of that, the self-defense forces personnel instead decide they're going to set up camp in an area 39 miles from the wreck to wait for morning to arrive so that they can go to the site. They actually didn't even reach the site, like I said, until 14 hours after the plane crashed on the mountain. So, you know, 9 o'clock the next morning is when they finally managed to get there. Um, there was, uh, like, there was a lot of obstruction. This is the middle of nowhere. It's the mountains. There was a former logging road near the site, but it was obstructed by several landslides. Uh, there were the threat of rock slides in that area. So people were, you know, trying to get up there, but it was very difficult and a very hard area to reach. Uh, they didn't set out until the morning, like I said, and they discovered bodies with injuries at the site, which made it clear if they had been alive after the crash, like Yumiochi I said, but they died during the night either because of their injuries or because of exposure. Not only was it hard for uh, the uh, you know for people to climb up there, but like I said, the, the helicopter really didn't have a place to land, and that was the only way they were going to get up there was on this helicopter. Uh, the point of the crash was on a forty-five degree slope, which you know, you're not going to land an air a, a helicopter on something like that without some help. So they did eventually clear some landing pads on the site, uh, some makeshift landing pads for. Uh, these helicopters to land on. I, I did see some images of this site and it, these were some pretty precarious landing pads I imagine for uh, some of these helicopter pilots. Once they got up there the um, the devastation, the level of the devastation was, was more than apparent. Uh, there were uh, at 200 bodies that were taken from the site to a makeshift morgue in a gym in the nearby town of Fujioka. Identifying the bodies would have been difficult for these families. Um, there are pictures that you can see if you go look online. I'm not going to point them out, but um, if you were to look up the, the flight, you do end up seeing pictures of, of the people who, who passed away. and. It was not a a pretty ending. Um, it, the pictures aren't the best, you know, much like the the picture of the plane with the the tail missing, um, the tail fin missing. Excuse me, not the whole tail, just the tail fin. Uh, you know, these are very, you know, they're not they're black and white pictures. They're not very detailed, and uh, they're gruesome when you realize what they are. The bodies are burned, they're mangled. Um, people at the front of the plane, they would have experienced when this when this plane hit the ground, they would have experienced a southern a sudden stop of a hundred G's. Uh, people can only survive a force of something like twenty five G's. So uh, the fact that they had experienced this sudden stop of a hundred G's, it's no wonder the the bodies turned out the way that they did. There were only four survivors, uh, four women. 
they were all seated on the left side of the plane and in rows uh, between 54 and 60. So they were basically in the relatively the same area. Uh, you had Yumi Ochiai, the off-duty JAL flight attendant. Uh, her seat was four rows from the back of the plane. She had pelvis and arm fractures. She was in a lot of pain. Uh, there was Hiroko Yoshisaki and her eight-year-old daughter Mikiko, who were in an intact section of the fuselage. Uh, her nine-year-old son, uh, Hiroko's nine-year-old son, was also lost in the crash. And Kiko Kawakami, uh, she was a 12-year-old girl who lost her parents and younger sister in the crash. Um, there's some accounts that say she was found under wreckage. There are some accounts that say that she was found in the branches of a tree. Uh, suffice it to say that she, she was lucky to survive. Uh, they were they were all lucky to survive. This is one of those crashes where uh, when you look at descriptions of this, um, you know, people, investigators and people who know planes kind of say, you know, it's, it's, it's a miracle anybody survived. Among the dead, um, there were um, 12 infants. Uh, you know, you had, you had 524 people on board and 520 people died. Uh, probably the most famous person on board was a singer named Kiyo Sakamoto. Um, Kiyo Sakamoto was a singer who had a song called Sukiyaki, which was an international hit, uh, number one hit in 1963. I thought the name Sukiyaki sounded familiar. And so I did what I always do when I'm doing research for these podcasts. I look up everything. And I looked up the uh, song on YouTube to see if I could recognize it. And it sounded familiar. But I hadn't heard the original, which is in Japanese. And that was what really made it significant, was that Japanese uh, songs in Japanese don't really become international hits, especially in America. But this one did. And uh, I did recognize it, though. Um, but I couldn't remember why. So I looked up uh, to see, you know, what the history of the song was. And it's been covered twice, uh, that, at least that got on the charts. I was covered um, in English translations uh, by A Taste of Honey in 1981. And the reason that I remember it, it was covered by an R&B band called 4PM in 1995, which to date myself is the year that I graduated high school. Um, so that's why I recognized the song is because um, I had heard that cover song uh, back in 1995. But it's a very beautiful song. If you heard it, you would probably recognize it too. It's just a matter of what generation you're in as opposed to, you know, which version of the song you remember. But um, he did he did pass away in the in the crash though. So. The uh, crash of Japan Airlines Flight 123 was concerning for a number of reasons. Uh, this was the second Japan Airlines crash in three years. On February 2nd, 1982, Japan Airlines Flight 350 was deliberately crashed by the pilot, Captain Seijai Katagiri, Katagiri, excuse me, during a descent into Haneda Airport, uh, killing 24 people. The co-pilot and the flight engineer actually struggled to stop the captain uh, from trying to crash the plane, but the plane still crashed into shallow water just short of the runway. Uh, Katagiri survived the crash, and he actually told rescuers he was an office worker to avoid being identified as the captain. He was later found to have been mentally ill prior to the flight, 
and he ended up committed to a mental institution which he was later released from uh so you know he was not blamed for that crash in, in a criminal way as much as he was um uh identified as being mentally ill and and taken uh committed to to a mental institution uh, but that was not the only flight that was significant in terms of um, this, uh, in, in relation to this crash. Uh, on June 23rd of that year, Air India 182 exploded over the ocean near the coast of Ireland, killing 329 people. At the time of the, the JAL-123 crash, investigators were still trying to determine the cause of the Air India crash. Wreckage was still washing ashore in, in uh, Ireland. I, I was looking through a couple of news stories and they did actually reference, you know, we don't know if these two are related. Uh, you know, we don't know if the same cause made both of these planes crash. I mean, you're looking at how many, you know, it's almost 850 people between these two plane crashes that died. You know, it understandably they might be concerned that it might be the same issue that's that's causing these large planes to crash. Uh, but in the case of uh, Air India 182, it later turned out that this had been an act of terrorism. Nine American investigators arrived to assist in the investigation, uh, five from Boeing and four from the NTSB. Um, you had somebody from the FAA who came. Um, investigators were kind of facing a problem. Uh, this was not an international flight. This was a domestic flight. Uh, and according to Japanese law, the crash is being investigated first and foremost as a criminal investigation. You had local police who were on the crash site and they were sort of treating it like a crime scene. That meant that the investigators needed to wait to be approved for permission to go there. Um, and like I said, it was a domestic flight. They didn't actually have to let the American investigators on the fl on, on the site at all. They finally did. They did end up going, being able to go there a few days later. But you know, they they were kind of lucky in that instance. The Japanese really did not have to let them on there, and and they did. Once the American investigators arrive, they were also not allowed to just take whatever they wanted. Uh, the criminal investigation superseded any safety investigation like the NTSB was doing, so the uh, and, and that Boeing was doing. So they really just couldn't say, okay, well, that part we think we need, so we're just going to pick that up and take, us, take it with us. They couldn't do that. While all of this is going on, while the investigation is going on, while these people from Boeing and 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 uh, and the NTSB are trying to get onto the uh, site to uh, check things out, families of the victims are starting to uh, climb to the site on foot to build memorials. Um, they're flying over in Chinook helicopters to drop flowers over the site. Um, if you look at news footage of the crash, you see. Uh, you know, kind of these, you know, these puffy, cutesy little um, uh, stuffed animals that people have brought up um, in memory of, of the um, people who crashed and, you know, they kind of set up these little memorials uh, for the victims. Several of the pieces of the plane are not found at the site. One of the first things that investigators do when they come to these plane crash uh, sites is they look for the four points of the plane. They look for the cockpit, they look for the two wings, and they look for the tail. Where they are is 
very important. It tells you a lot about what happened during this crash. You know, if you find, you know, if you find the wing and the, you know, two wings and the tail in one relatively in the same spot and you find the cockpit, you know, two miles away, that tells you something. Um, you know, for example, I believe that was that was the sort of situation you had with Lockerbie was, you know, the the those were over there where you had the cockpit in another place that that tells you something that tells you that something happened in midair. Um, if you know the the uh, cockpit and the uh, wings and the tail are in relatively the same spot, the plane basically fell, you know, fell in one piece. Um, you know, if one piece is missing, you have to wonder where that is. The pieces of the plane that were missing were found in Sagami Bay, a hundred miles from the crash site. This would be have been on their flight path. Uh, what they found was a large part of the tail fin, and uh, that kind of you know told the investigators a lot, since all that was left of the tail fin on the site was this very thin, 19-inch high piece. You know, just think about how long that is. It, you know, kind of kind of think about that with your hands. Just try you know 19 inches. Now think about, you know, stretch your hands out 19 inches. It's a very thin piece of metal. Now imagine that is all that you find at the site of a jumbo jet crash. That's all that's left of that tail fin. That, that little piece. That's when the investigators knew that something was wrong. Um, another thing that they found in Sagami Bay was the six foot fiberglass tube from the APU, the auxiliary power unit, and they found the lower part of the rudder, which had the AL, the letters AL, from the JAL on it. One thing they didn't find elsewhere, they found the R5 rear right cargo door at the crash site. It was right there. That told them that it did not fall off in flight, it did not break off, it did not go flying off into the air. It was attached to the plane the whole time. It had to be to end up at that crash site. So now the investigators know, you know, there's no tail, all these pieces are in this the, the bay over there, the cargo doors at the crash site. That's not the cause of this. Um, obviously, you know, investigators are concerned it's terrorism, you know, like I said, the Air India uh, 182, they still don't know what's going on with that one. And they were also concerned because something like 600 747s were flying in total around the world at that time. You, if, if this is a general problem, if this is a problem that all these planes have, this is an issue they have to fix as soon as possible. They have to stop all of these planes from flying and fix this issue or they could have uh, hundreds more dead because of it. When the investigators were on site and found the aft pressure bulkhead, they recognized the possibility that there might have been a rupture in one of these panels. The way that the metal fatigue makes metal look is different than the way that an explosive makes metal look. Think about um, how it looks when you have a paper clip and you, you know, you're bored and you're sitting there and you're playing with a paper clip. You unfold it, you bend it back and forth a little bit and once you've bent it back a few times it, it breaks. 
and you can see you know what it looks like at the breaking point that looks different yeah, you know, it looks like it has a different effect on the metal than if you say put a firecracker in a tin can and watch what happens. You know, that's going to do a different thing to metal than metal fatigue is going to do. The investigators recognize though that this is this is not good. So they uh, were not allowed to remove this bulkhead from the site because it was still a criminal investigation under Japanese law. So what they did instead was they made impressions of the area where the bulkhead was broken with tape to take with them. Um, I believe it was it was something like you know it was like um, you know just basic tan tape you know you put it over there and then it kind of like it looked like an etching that they took with them. Um, and so they took that with them. Um, I believe. Uh, I, I heard later that, you know, you can still see the tape on that bulkhead piece. Um, but they took those with them, and they realized, looking at them, that something was not right. They start going back through the plane's history, and they find out about that previous repair. And at that point, everything starts to make sense, especially when they find out how the repair was changed by the repair team who was putting it back in the plane. According to the investigators, uh, the flawed bulkhead repair meant that the bulkhead would more than likely fail after about 10,000 pressurizations. So, you know, fly the plane, come back, that's one pressurization. Uh, you know, when you, you go up in the air, you come down, one pressurization. The plane uh, in question had lasted 12,318 pressurizations from the time of the repair to the moment of failure in 1985. So it could have happened any time in the past, you know, in, in the past few months uh, prior to that accident. And it was sort of miraculous that it didn't, that it lasted as long as it did. Japan Airlines Flight 123 is the worst single plane loss of life in aviation history. Uh, it's only beaten by the Tenerife disaster, which is two planes on the ground, which I will get to uh one of these days um and of course 9-11 which is sort of in a uh sort of in a class by itself in terms of plane crashes um following the crash bookings for uh japan airlines domestic flights dropped by a third uh, what it happened was that rumors start swirling that boeing uh, who, you know, they sent the, you know, the bulkhead to be repaired. They were the ones who told the, the people to repair it. They were the ones who maybe didn't check that, you know, it didn't really go the way it was planned. Um, that they were taking responsibility to cover up for such an important customer. Japan Airlines was a big airline. It was partially owned by the government, so it was a very important airline. It was, you know, like I said, it was very busy. You know, it's a popular country in terms of air travel. So um, this kind of thought that maybe Boeing was taking responsibility to kind of cover up for Japan Airlines starts infusing um, the country. Um, they uh, stop um, using airlines as much. Jap domestic traffic in Japan, not just on JAL, but on all flights, decreased by a quarter over the next few months. Uh, Japan Airlines ended up paying out 780 million yen or uh, 
7.6 million uh, US dollars as quote-unquote condolence money to people who lost loved ones in the crash but they, they never really admitted fault on their part officially um, that said uh, the president of the company Yasumoto Takagi resigned and uh, two people the maintenance engineer Hiro Tominaga and the engineer Susumu Tajima who inspected and cleared the plane to fly they both committed suicide understandably JAL no longer uses the number 123 for its flights they retired that number they no longer use that there is a memorial stone that stands in Fujioka the town near where the plane crashed uh, it's really it's a really beautiful memorial um, if you see pictures of it, it's 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 very lovely and 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 uh, you know it's a very nice memorial. Uh, in 2009, they installed stairs so visitors could go to the crash site and leave um, um, you know remembrances for their loved ones. On April 26, 2006, the Safety Promotion Center was established by Japan Airlines in the Dainaisogu building at Haneda Airport. Uh, the Safety Promotion Center is it's actually kind of interesting you can the public can go the public can go and see this center uh, they have to make an appointment at least a day in advance to visit when it was first uh, proposed it was meant to be uh, to kind of teach Japan Airlines employees uh, kind of you know to promote safety to, to, to teach them about the crash and how to make uh, the uh, airline a more safe airline to fly uh, the families kind of heard about that and, and raised a fuss, and so uh, the uh, Japan Airlines decided to make it open to the public as well. Uh, the Safety Promotion Center features artifacts from the crash, including 41 pieces of the wreckage. Uh, they have the ruptured bulkhead is there in two pieces. It's actually in a, in a kind of a domed frame. You can look and see exactly where it broke. Um, I, like I said, the, they, the tape that they use to kind of make those impressions to find out why the bulkhead collapsed is there's still like remnants of that still on the on the bulkhead. Um, there's notes from the people who perished. Some of the notes that I read aloud, those are uh, those are uh, the pictures of them and, and translations in English and Japanese are, are located at the Safety Promotion Center. Uh, that photo that was taken inside the plane, that's at the Safety Promotion Center. Um, and another thing that's that's really kind of um, kind of a tragic is there is a violinist named Diana Yukawa. Diana Yukawa was the daughter of Akihira Yukawa, who died in the crash. Um, he was a businessman, and he um, had a wife and two sons, but he also had a mistress um, who uh, was an English dancer. Uh, she, uh, Diana was born a few weeks after the crash occurred. Um, she, because she wasn't his, you know, uh, because she was the daughter, her and her sister were the daughter of, you know, sort of his mistress as opposed to his wife, uh, she was not really recognized by Japanese law until 2009. You know, family really had to fight for that for both of them. Uh, she, later on, she becomes this renowned violinist. She's very popular in Japan, as far as I know. Um, and on the 24th anniversary of the crash, crash she um, climbed Mount Ostaka with her violin to uh, play a piece she composed in her father's honor.
what I find really interesting about Japan Airlines Flight 123, just in terms of, um, it, it's not even in terms of how many people died in that crash. I mean, that's overwhelming, but it's just how much of it relates back to other plane crashes and, and you know, um, and not only that, but also how long those the the crew managed to keep that plane in the air it's it's miraculous what they did uh the fact that not everybody survived the the flight that only four people lived uh, i mean that is you know that's tragic but yeah it's entirely possible that you know um more people lived because of what they did and the only reason that so many people died was because of that delayed rescue. They may have saved a lot more people um, if only, you know, other people had cooperated. And they managed to do it in a situation where it was entirely likely that everybody should have died in that crash. Um, uh, the miracle of what they did is, is um, impressive. Uh, and so, uh, every time I, I sort of, um, I, I read about this disaster or I, or I watch, um, sort of the, the, you know, the air crash investigation episode on it. When you hear 32 minutes, it, it's, you know, 32 minutes at any other time in your life seems like, you know, nothing. Um, you know, when your lunchtime lasts 32 minutes, you, your 30 minutes, you think, you know, it goes by so quickly. But in this particular case, 32 minutes was, that was an eternity. That gave people on that flight time to say goodbye to their loved ones, not face to face, but in notes and in, letters and you know just to kind of say you know i love you our, our children turned out great you know i'm i'm so uh, upset that this is the last time i'm ever going to talk to you you know please take care of the kids i love you you know that sort of thing just they got a chance to do that because of that crew those crew that crew was they were heroic what they did was fantastic they did everything that they could do right and anything that they did wrong, um, the few mistakes that they may or may not have made were more than likely due to a lack of oxygen, which again, not their fault. Um, you know, there, there is a lot to be said for the three men that were in the cockpit that day. And it's just really impressive that, um, they kept, uh, the plane up as long as they did and that they managed to save as many people as they did, uh, you know, botched rescue aside, uh, delayed rescue aside, they were heroes. Um, in a difficult situation, they managed to keep that plane in the air in a way that um, not a lot of, of planes have managed over the course of, of, um, of history, of the history of airplane crashes, you know. Um, losing hydraulics like that is something where um, normally um, it's, it's never a good ending. Um, when it is a good ending, it is, it, 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 even then it's not a good ending. I mean, you know, like I said, I talked about fl uh, United Flight 232, um, that crashed in, in, at Sioux City and, and that flight, I mean, for all the people, um, uh, for all of the visual of that, that tumbling and turning into a big fireball and what happened 
to that flight, a lot of people survived that flight. A lot of people managed to live. Um, not everybody did, but that was a disaster that should have claimed everybody on board, could have easily claimed the lives of everybody on board, and it didn't, because the crew in that case was magnificent. And one of these days, I will do a episode on that flight. Uh, and one of my other favorite heroes of disasters, Denny Fitch. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it, that's the thing with, with, um, these plane crashes is that sometimes, uh, you can see just how good a flight crew really is. And sometimes you can see just how bad they are. Um, in this case, luckily it's, it's, it's the, the prior, these, you know, the first one, these, these people were, were doing their best in a very difficult situation and, and they, they did really well. Um, you know, there are times where you see, um, planes which crashed due to pilot error and you just, uh, you know, it's the opposite. You're just, you're just how, you know, I hope, you know, you start having these nightmares of people, these people flying your plane. And, um, in this case, I would much rather have the, the, uh, crew who flew, um, the plane in, uh, on flight one, two, three, than than a lot of other, uh, uh, crews. They did, uh, you know, they did an extraordinary job. And unfortunately, um, it, unfortunately it was the worst crash but it's um and they and they didn't make it out but you know they did what they could and uh four people uh were alive uh to uh tell the tale with that in mind um i have no idea what i'm doing for the next episode i have an idea vague but we'll see how that works out um until next time though stay safe <laughs>